evidence and answers. What does this word rapture really mean? I can't find it in the scriptures. Does the Bible speak about this? And what are we to believe? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucaran. Pat is an international teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In today's broadcast, Pat is interviewing pastor, author, and Christian apologist, Dr. Mark Hitchcock, as they discuss this event known to Christians as the rapture. Now to discuss this question of can we believe in the rapture is our host, Pat Zucran. Uh, you have the word that's used there is harpazo in the Greek. It means to be snatched or to be caught up. You know, the we who are alive will be caught up together in the clouds, you know, to meet the Lord in the air. Well, that word harpazo occurs, I think it's 14 times in the New Testament. And uh, that's one of the places it occurs. But in the, the, the Bible was written, you know, the New Testament was written in Greek to begin with. Later on, a man came along named Jerome, and he translated the New Testament from Greek into Latin that the people could read in that day. And the word that Jerome used to translate the Greek word harpazo was the word rapio, which becomes the, the idea of the rapture of the church. So it comes from the Latin word that's used there. So a lot of people say, well, the word rapture is not even in the Bible. Well, the word harpazo is in the Greek, and then in the Vulgate, we get the word rapture from the, the word that was used there, and that came over into the English. So, you know, if people don't want to call it the rapture of the church. They can call it the catching away of the church or the harpazo of the church or, you know, whatever word you want to use for it. But the doctrine or the idea of the rapture is clearly there in passages like First Thessalonians chapter four verse seventeen, also in First Corinthians chapter fifteen verses fifty one and fifty two. So the idea of a catching away or a group of people leaving this earth without tasting death is clearly presented in the New Testament. Now, as you state in your book, the rapture of the church is not the first time something like the rapture occurs. There are several events in the Bible, Old and New Testament, where people are actually taken out of the world. That's right. You go all the way back to the Old Testament. I mean, you look at Enoch. You know, Enoch was, you know, it says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So Enoch got raptured to heaven. You know, it's in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 24. Um, Elijah was caught up in a fiery chariot. You know, he was caught up to, to go to heaven to be with God. So these were individuals who were caught up and raptured. You know, even the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 says that he was caught up to paradise. And he uses the word actually, harpazo, that word that's translated rapture. So Paul got caught up to heaven. Now, he, he went up and came back down, but he still was caught up there. So uh, there are several raptures in the Bible uh, that are spoken of. So the rapture of the church at the end of this age will be unique in the fact that many, many people will go in this event, not just one. But the concept of a rapture has already been seen throughout Scripture where people go to heaven without dying. And that's what we mean by the rapture. There's going to be an entire generation of believers who are going to do an end run on the grave. We won't die. Um, you know, in 1 Corinthians it says that we shall not all sleep. In other words, not everybody will die. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. So in the moment, time it takes to blink your eye, a generation of people are going to not sleep. They're not going to die, but they're going to be transformed or changed and, and go immediately to heaven to be with the Lord. And so the idea of the rapture is a biblical doctrine. It's taught many places in the New Testament. Now, there are some who argue who say, well, the word rapture doesn't appear in 
the writings of the church fathers, you know, the early church fathers. That's a very late development. What do you have to say to that? Yeah, that's one of the most common arguments that's used all the time. And the book that Ed Heinsohn and I have written called Can We Still Believe in the Rapture? I think that's one of the most important things that we contribute in this book. And a lot of the information, again, in, uh, for disclosure, we got from a man named William Watson. And uh, William Watson has done some incredible work about going back in church history, finding rapture statements early on in church history and throughout church history that are powerful. You know, people always say, well, the pre-trib rapture didn't come about till the 1830s, you know, with J.N. Darby. And that statement simply is false. I can say that there's an overwhelming amount of evidence back in church history, starting back in the 4th century A.D., we have a statements from 1300 A.D., many, many statements in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries about statements about the rapture, even using statements like people being left behind. You know, people think the left behind series, you know, with Tim LaHaye is new. They even actually use the language of people being left behind. So we're not going to have time in this interview to go through all of the information, but we have a whole chapter called History of the Rapture Doctrine. And I would encourage people that don't even agree with pre-trib rapture to get the book that we've written and to read that chapter, because for people to continue to say that this doctrine came about in the 1830s with Jay and Darby simply is a factually inaccurate statement, and people need to stop making that statement. Again, you can disagree with pre-trib rapture if you want to. What I ask people is at least be fair, and let's not use arguments that are incorrect. Right. Now, some people also, I think, the church fathers were developing other doctrines that they had to defend, so they weren't able to do a full-scale theology of the end times eschatology I think early on the battle was Christology, battling Arius and the nature of Christ. And then you had the debate on the Trinity and then the debate on, you know, the books of the Bible, which one belong in the Bible. And then with the Reformation, you had the battle over what is the gospel, what is the salvation message. So the debate on and full development of eschatology really doesn't happen till maybe modern times. Is that right? Well, that's right. I mean, the way I like to say it is, you know, back then they had they had bigger fish to fry. I mean, in many ways, yeah, you're talking about the person of Jesus and all kinds of aberrant doctrines they were going against. But what I would really say about about dispensationalists, about myself, is really, in some ways, we are that we are continuing to reform. You know, the doctrines that were lost, and so I think, in some ways, we're more reformed than people who claim to be reformed because what we would say is, look eschatology and all of the work of Luther, Calvin, you know, Zwingli, and the others who were there, they never got around really to reforming the eschatology of the Catholic Church, um, which I think was taken about through Augustine and Tychonius and others who took this more allegorical type approach, that in the, again, the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, people began to come back around to the idea that Israel means Israel. These prophecies are literal, and they're really going to be fulfilled in the future. So you know, I would say that eschatology didn't really get reformed until the 17 and 1800s, and is still continuing to be fully developed today. Yes. Now, when it comes to those who believe in the rapture, there are three views as to when the rapture will take place. So right now we're in the church age, and then the church age will end when we go into a period of seven years tribulation where God's wrath is unleashed upon the church. And somewhere in there is 
the time of the rapture. Now, what are the three views as to when the rapture will take place? Well, there's three different views, and it's spoken of in relation to the coming time of tribulation. There's the pre-trib rapture view that says Christ will come and catch his saints to heaven pre or before the seven-year tribulation period that's coming. The mid-trib view says that he will come back at the middle of that period of time. And the post-trib view, as you can imagine, says he'll come back right at the end. So post-tribulationists believe that what will happen, Jesus will be coming back at his second coming, which we all believe in that, a return of Christ to the earth, that believers will be caught up to meet Jesus in the air, that will make a U-turn and come right back down to the earth with him. So they would say that the second coming and the rapture occur basically at the same time. So it's kind of, it's one event that happens basically in one phase. So those are the three main views, the pre-trib, the mid-trib, and the post-trib. And this is, again, we're talking about here, again, the timing of the rapture. Right. Now, they're good Christians that hold to all three views. And you sure. can read about all three in Mark's and uh, Ed Heinsohn's great book here, Can We Still Believe in the Rapture? But Mark, uh, you hold to a pre-tribulation rapture position. Yeah, give us some reasons why you think the rapture will occur before the tribulation occurs. Well, we've got a lot of chapters. We go into detail explaining our view. And what we've tried to do in this book is a couple of things. One is we've tried to interact with the best of scholars who hold the other views. You know, we don't want to use straw man arguments or, right. you know, kind of the weakest arguments. We want to use really up-to-date you know, scholarly people who hold these other views. And we've also tried in the book to have a really good tone. You know, we're not mad at people who are mid-trib or post-trib. We don't think they're stupid or, you know, or that they have bad motives. It's just a difference of opinion. So we try to go through and just point out and, and say, we want to give a measured, reasoned case for our view that people can read and then they can make up their own mind. But one of the reasons we give is the doctrine of imminency. And by imminency, we mean that Christ could come back at any moment. And again, we give a lot of scriptures that, that we think support the idea that Jesus could come back at any time. Now, think about this. If Jesus can come back at any moment, then the mid-trib or post-trib views cannot be correct, because we're not even in the tribulation yet. So if the tribulation hasn't started yet, obviously Jesus can't come back today, because mid-tribbers would say we can't come back to the middle of that time, or post-tribbers would say he can't come back to the end of that time. So if you really believe Jesus could come back at any moment, you have to be pre-trib because, you know, again, we're not even in the tribulation period yet. And so that's an important argument, I think. You know, only a pre-trib person can really wake up in the morning and say, perhaps today, you know, today might be the day that Jesus will come. So it's this idea of eminency that seems to be presented in the New Testament. It just seems to be presented in many places, many verses, as something that could happen at any moment because it's presented as something we're to be looking for. And again, why be looking for something if it's years away? Um, another argument we would give is that we're promised several places in the New Testament, in, in the Thessalonian, uh, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, that we're going to be exempt from the time of wrath. Uh, there's a time of wrath that's coming. That time of wrath, we believe, is the tribulation period. And uh, Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1 and verse uh, 10 that Jesus is coming to deliver us from the coming wrath. Now, all of the views agree, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, that we are exempt from the wrath of God. Mid-tribbers will say, well, the wrath of God is just going to be the last three and a half years of the tribulation, so the Lord will come and catch us away then. 
Post-tribbers will say, well, no, the wrath of God is going to be just concentrated at the very end of the tribulation, and God will see us through that time, and then we'll be caught up to meet him as he comes back to the earth. But mid-tribbers say, no, the whole seven-year period is a time of God's wrath being poured out on the earth. We would say that because the seal judgments that begin the tribulation are part of God's wrath. You have the seals, then the trumpets, then the bowls. All of that is the wrath of God. And so if that's true, then we would say that we have to be caught up to be exempted from that wrath before the time of wrath comes. And again, we make a a lot of those arguments in a chapter that we have. So those are a couple of the arguments we use is the idea of imminency and the idea of our exemption from the wrath of God means that we're going to have to be caught up before that time of wrath begins. Yes. Now, some will argue, you know, Daniel 9, 27 talks about the seven years of tribulation, the seven weeks, but that the Antichrist makes a covenant with Israel at the, you know, which begins the tribulation, but then breaks it in the middle at the three and a half year period. And that's the part that begins the great tribulation. And that's the part we'll be exempt from. How do no, you that's right. That's that's what mid-tribbers would say. Right. Yes, it's that final part. Well, again, what I go back to is in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 1, you have Jesus, the Lord Jesus, there opening a seven-sealed scroll. And the seven-sealed scroll, I believe, is a will or the inheritance that Jesus will receive when he comes back to take the kingdoms of this world. And he begins to open these seals, and these seals are judgments that are being unleashed on the earth by the Lamb. He, the Lamb is opening these seals, so they're being unleashed by him. And when you begin to read those seal judgments, those seals are the wrath of God, the wrath of the Lamb that are being unleashed. And that's at the beginning of the tribulation, not at the middle of it. Now, everybody would agree that, uh, again, believes in a future tribulation, that the tribulation is going to get worse as it goes along. We all agree that the seal judgments are open, then there's the trumpets that are even worse, and then the bowls that are worse after that. But to say that the first half of the tribulation is not the wrath of God, to me, is denying the fact that Jesus is the one opening these seals and unleashing the judgments there, which is God's wrath. So, again, it just depends on when you start the wrath of God and how you see us being protected through that. And as a pre-tribber, I see the whole seven-year period as God's wrath, and I think we're going to be exempted from it or caught up and taken out of the earth before that time period begins. Yes. Now, I guess another argument is 1 Corinthians 15. It says that the last trump, and 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about the trumpet call of God. And many will say, well, that's the seventh trumpet in Revelation chapter 11. So that occurs, some will say, at the end of the tribulation or right in the middle. Now, right. are those trumpets the same thing? Well, I don't take it that they are. Again, you know, th- these are all interpretive issues. But when you have Paul saying in 1 Corinthians 15, the rapture will happen at the last trumpet, you have the trumpet in, in, in uh, Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15, the seventh trumpet. The problem there is the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11 is a trumpet of judgment. It's bringing judgment on the earth. Um, it's a trumpet that's being sounded there by an angel. Whereas the trumpet, the last trumpet, now 1 Corinthians 15, is the trumpet of God, and it's a trumpet of grace and mercy. It's a trumpet that is gathering God's people to heaven to come and to be with him. So I don't see those two trumpets as being the same. Just because in 1 Corinthians 15 it says it's the last trumpet, and you have the seventh trumpet in Revelation chapter 11, doesn't necessarily mean we have to correlate those two and uh, see them as being the same. They seem to be in different settings. Uh, They seem to be signaling different things to me. So 
I don't see any similarity or any identity between those two trumpets. Mm. Now, I guess, you know, one final argument we'll go over that we hear a lot is that, well, most of the church fathers, even if some of them were futurist, they were post-tribulation kind of uh, futurist. So that's the historical premillennial view here. How would you answer mm -hmm. that? Well, no, I, mean, I think it is true in the early church. You don't have a lot of clear statements of the pre-trib rapture. But again, as I said earlier, what you do have is a lot of statements about the fact that Christ could come at any moment. We're always to be looking for his coming. And that's consistent with the pre-trib rapture. That's not consistent with the post-tribulation view, which says that all of these events have to happen you know, before the second coming can occur. If you're a post-tribber, you get up today and you could say, Jesus isn't coming back today. That's true. He's not, right. If you're post-trib, he isn't coming today or mid-trib. But so in the early church, though, they, they seem to have this idea he could come back at any moment. So what I would say is they didn't have these things fully developed back then, but, but they had this idea he can come at any moment, which is consistent with the pre-trib rapture. Um, we do see statements, though, uh, beginning with the fourth century with uh, someone named Pseudo-Ephraim of a statement of a rapture or a catching away or a gathering of God's people before this time of trouble that's coming. And that goes back to like the fourth century. And then after that, we begin to have a lot of statements. And in the 15 and 1600s in that period of time, a lot of them. I mean, there are literally dozens of them being, being made at that time. In the 1300s, there was a group called the Followers of Brother Dulcino who believed in a rapture, a catching away of God's people before this time of trouble that was coming. So, um, you know, it's not something that came along in the 1800s. We can say that for sure. Of course, my argument would be that Paul and the early apostles taught this view. The Lord Jesus is going to come and deliver us from the coming wrath. So our ultimate source is the Bible and Jesus and the apostles. It's not church history. And I think Paul taught this idea that we'd be caught up before this time of trouble comes. And that seems to be spoken of at least sometimes in the early church and then developed in the 16 and 1700s to be developed very extensively. There's some skeptics who'll say, you know, hey, the rapture hasn't occurred. You know, it's been 2,000 years. And you've written on this subject. You know, what are some signs that perhaps we are nearing the rapture? Well, you know, Noah said it was going to rain and there were going to be a flood for 120 years, and they didn't listen to him. You know, right. so people tend to not want to think about these things or put them aside. But, you know, I'm sure that your listeners are, are familiar with a lot of these basic things. But, you know, the, the regathering of the nation of Israel, I mean, in 1948, the, against all odds, yeah, the Jewish people who've been, yeah, it's a miracle. They've been scattered to, to 70 different countries for almost 2,000 years. Their language had died, and yet they're brought back to the land. And back in 1948, 6% of the Jews in the world lived in Israel. Now it's almost 40% of them. So the existence of this modern state of Israel, the globalism that we see in our world, you know, we, the whole world has kind of shrunk now to where one person can rule the world, as the Bible tells us will happen in the end times through this coming world ruler, the Antichrist. We see, you know, the Gog-Magog prophecy in Ezekiel 38 and 39 that speaks of Russia and Iran 
and some other Islamic nations today invading Israel in the end times. Uh, we see this desire for peace in Israel. And, of course, one of the events that signals the beginning of the tribulation period is a treaty between this coming world leader, the Antichrist, and Israel, some kind of a, a peace agreement. And, of course, if there's anything the world wants today, it's peace there in the Middle East. So we see a lot of foreshadows. We see a lot of what I call the stage setting um, that's taking place in our world today that I think should cause us to believe that the coming of Jesus could be very soon. Now, you know, as we bring this uh, interview to an end, you know, one of the questions I'm sure a lot of people are asking is, you know, well, what difference does it make about the rapture? Why mm -hmm. study about the rapture? Tell us why. Well, I mean, I think we study prophecy. About 28% uh, of the Bible was prophecy at the time it was written. So as, if we're going to be believers and believe the Bible, I mean, I love, the, I love Bible prophecy because I love the Bible. But, you know, Jesus spoke often of the coming of, of his coming. You know, if you read the New Testament, there's 260 chapters in the New Testament, over 300 references to the coming of Christ. Um, it, it's spoken of frequently in, in the New Testament. It's, it's one of the fundamentals of our faith that Jesus is coming back again. And I think we want to understand that. We want to understand what he said about his coming and what the apostles said about it. And it's our hope. I mean, you look at this world we live in today, the only hope for this world is that Jesus is coming back. That's the only hope that we have. And we want to study that and we want to understand it. And again, if people come to a different view that I come to about some of the details of this, I have no problem with that, but we need to, to believe that he's coming back. And I think we need to believe that he's coming back at any moment. He could come at any time. And if you really believe that, it will change the way you live. And if you get up every day and say, perhaps today, today might be the day that Jesus is coming back, I can promise you it will change the way you live. But if it's something in the back of our mind or out there in the distant future and we never think about it, then we're going to be like the foolish virgins, you know, these that Jesus talked about who go out and who go to sleep and who are unprepared at his coming. So you know, I think it has a lot of ramifications if we really think about it and really take it into our lives and it becomes part of the, the, the fiber of our Christian life. Yes, and I think one of the things that your book is real helpful in is, you know, the things going on in the world today. It can really get depressing when you're looking at Russia sure. and, and the Middle East and terrorism and all that. But then to know... That really God's in control and it's it's falling into his plan. You know, right. all of that really gives us hope in the midst of a world that, that seems to be in chaos. That's right. Yeah, it's the only hope we have. Yes. And to me, to see and to look at our world today and see that our world today is developing exactly as we should expect it to be developing if the Bible's true. You know, Israel should be in the land. They are. We should have globalism. And we do. Um, we should see these nations of Gog and Magog, you know, coming together. Uh, we should see a, a rise of a, a reunited Roman Empire, you know, spoken of in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. You have, you know, the EU today, which certainly isn't the fulfillment of that, but it, I think it could be the beginnings of it. We see, you know, this clamoring for peace in the Middle East. The, the focus of the whole world is on the Middle East. Um, so the, things are happening the way we should expect them to be happening if the Bible is true. And so that gives me confidence in the truth of the Scriptures. These things that the Bible has spoken of are happening. And since these things are happening, we can know that uh, the things that are still future will happen as well. Yes, fantastic. You've been listening to our interview with Dr. Mark Hitchcock. He's co-authored a book with Ed Heinsohn. Great book on Can We Still Believe in the Rapture, Mark received his doctorate from Dallas Theological Seminary. And Mark, you've got a website where you post some of your 
not only your schedule but some of your videos and seminars that you've done but other resources as well where can they go find that information yeah i've got a brand new prophecy update i'm doing every week so it's about a three to five minute update answer questions it's marklhitchcock.com is my website they can go watch those updates there they go to my Facebook page, I can send questions, and I answer some of the questions there as well that come in. So it's marklhitchcock.com. Fantastic. All right, so you've been listening to our interview with Mark Hitchcock and recommend that you get his new book here, Can We Still Believe in the Rapture, as well as his other books there, one of the best teachers today in Bible prophecy. So, Mark, thanks for being with us here. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. God bless you. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold a conference, give him a call. That number locally in Hawaii is 4830586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online on the homepage. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Evidence and Answers.